Would you join me now in prayer? God who cares and listens, we recognize you this morning. You are the God of hope, the God of mercy, the God of grace, and the God of love. We give you glory and honor, and you alone are worthy of our praise. We thank you for the life and sacrifice of your son Jesus who died for us so that we could be set free. And we thank you for giving us your spirit as a promise and a helper while we live in the temporal and we long for the eternal. Lord, we remember and honor those who have lost their lives in service to our country. This is a holiday weekend where we have sales and celebrations and gatherings, but Father, we want to recognize those who have lost their lives for us, for our freedom. We pray for the family, friends, and all those in the military who have suffered great loss. We pray for your comfort for them. And Lord, may we not take for granted their sacrifice. We honor them today. Father, we pray for those around the world who are living in the midst of violence, oppression, conflict, persecution, and we mourn with those who have lost their home, their loved ones, who have no sense of safety. We turn to you, we pray for your peace. We pray for your presence and your light to shine through the darkness. We pray for your grace to be poured out living water. And Father, closer to home, we are heartbroken about the tragic loss of nine people whose lives were taken this week. We pray for comfort and care for their families, friends, and coworkers. We pray for those who were there, who survived, who witnessed what went on, who are living with the trauma. We pray for them over these days and weeks and months and years of healing. We grieve with them and we entrust them into your care. May they know your love and hope. We pray for healing in our community as we struggle with the shock and the confusion, the pain and the fear. Be with us, God, we need you. We pray for those who are with us today who are hurting, for those who are sick, for those who are feeling lonely. We pray for those who are feeling lost and alone and unseen. We pray for your healing mercy and tender care upon them. And we know you love us, Lord. So would you open our eyes to care, to reach out, to step out of our comfort zones in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, and out into the world. Father, help us to care for one another. Help us to be your light, to reflect your grace and love. And Father, we thank you for Brian, and we ask that you would be with him as he brings your word to us. Stir in him, give him your spirit, give him your words. And may our time together in your word bring hope. May it be life-giving and life-changing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 33, verses 10 through 20. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. 
Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Amen. And the other child may come up. <laughs> well, let's pray together as we come to the scriptures. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for a day when we can pray for the hurting and celebrate your faithfulness through your servant. We thank you for the body of Christ worldwide, those online, um, all those around the world now bowing before your throne. <clears throat> Feed each of them the word of God, and the life of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, Jesus said, um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, we live in a world at war. We live in a nation divided and in communities torn by violence. And sadly, the church has often done more to fuel the flames of the fire than to bring understanding and healing. Where are the peacemakers? Where are those willing to do the hard work, tearing down the walls of division and creating conditions that are necessary for reconciliation? More importantly, who knows what is required before the process can begin? Where are the peacemakers? You know, our culture is so saturated with violence that when I searched for images of Peacemaker to illustrate my message, what came up was images of guns. On and on, firearms. And then I kept scrolling, and after guns <coughs> came superheroes who kill people. Well, perhaps Joseph can enlighten us on peacemaking, as reconciliation is going to become the theme for the next three chapters. It's 121 verses. The amount of material the scriptures devote to these suggests two things. How important the work of reconciliation is to God, and secondly, how difficult and complex the process can be. You know, authentic reconciliation requires extreme discernment, sensitivity, and most of all, patience. So last week we examined Joseph's amazing exaltation, and having been forgotten in prison for 13 years, he was elevated to second in command in Egypt. And the patriarch declared that it was so sweet was this act of God to him that it made him forget all the pain associated with his family. But then we wonder, did Joseph really forget? 
Or did the ache for his father and brothers still reside deep within him? And what about all those dreams? Would they ever be fulfilled? How would God get the rest of Jacob's family to Egypt, especially when Jacob's father Isaac was warned never to go there? But God is able, and in the story of Joseph and his brothers, it is God who initiates the reconciliation process by means of a worldwide famine. Bruce Walkie calls this God's severe mercies. Surprisingly, Jacob's family undertakes not one, but three journeys to Egypt. And I think each describes a necessary stage in the process of reconciliation. Well, the first has an inverted structure. Death frames the chapter, and at the center we find Joseph's brothers in prison. Last week I mentioned that the Bible shares stories. You have earlier stories shaping future stories, and so there's a wonderful coherence about the Bible. The Bible's also about structure, and I discover if I can find the structure of a passage, I can get to the meaning of a passage and the order of it. And there's a couple ways the Bible gives structure. One of them is an inverted structure. It's like a movie. You start at an opening scene, you go to a climactic center, and then everything turns on its head, and then you end where you began with new meaning. And if you look here, you'll see that we have death at the outer frames, and in the center, which is the heart of the story and the message, the brothers are in prison, which tells us that there's no reconciliation without repentance. We come then to verse 1 of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And, and he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So Jacob once again re-enters our story. And although he is quite old, he still carries the patriarchal authority, and in that role, he is the initiator of the early action. He chides his sons for their lack of initiative to deal with the famine. And appealing to their need for survival, he orders them to go to Egypt to get grain so that they may live and not die. Just as famine has a way of bringing nations together, death has a way of bringing even estranged families together. And I've seen that happen countless times at memorial services. Verse three. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now one might expect that Jacob would send all his sons on the journey to bring back as much grain as possible for the family, but he keeps one behind. Who is it? Benjamin. Who is Benjamin? The only remaining son of Rachel. So the narrative gives us a rare look into Joseph's thoughts, explaining that the patriarch feared that harm may befall him as it did with Joseph. So favoritism still prevails in this family, causing us to wonder if the family is doomed to repeated failure. But facing the starvation, the narrator records no jealous reaction by the brothers. 
They simply obey, set out for Egypt, and that sets the stage for a reunion. Verse six. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Well, by the time Joseph's brothers arrived in Egypt, Joseph was well established in his rule, and Egypt is bursting at the seams with foreigners lining up to buy grain. But though Joseph has a monopoly on the grain supply, he doesn't do what modern people do. He doesn't jack up the prices and take advantage of the situation to get rich. He will sell to everybody in need. And thus the proverb, the people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Well, 20 years after Joseph's brothers sold him to Egypt, they now find themselves standing before him. But this time their roles are reversed, and it's Joseph who holds their lives in his power. Verse 6b. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves down to him and their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Can you imagine the emotion he feels when your abusers that you haven't seen in 20 years are bowing before you? Joseph recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So the brothers bowed down in humility before their brother. Joseph immediately recognizes them, but disguises himself, that's actually the same word, so that they do not recognize him. And the brothers use the same term when they ask their father to recognize Joseph's blood-soaked tunic, as does Tamar when she asked Judah to recognize the pledges he gave her for sexual favors. The theme of recognition plays a huge role in these stories. Whoever possesses this knowledge definitely has the upper hand. Well, with his brothers before him, Joseph remembers his dreams. Walkie suggests, even as Pharaoh's dreams of abundance and famine formed the basis of Joseph's strategy to save the world, so his dream that his entire family would bow down before him probably inspires him to a strategy that will bring all of them as a reconciled family to Egypt. Verse nine. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Well, you'll note, Joseph does not guard his, or drop his guard until he can determine whether his brothers are trustworthy. You can't expect someone who's abused to want to go back into a relationship unless it is safe. So he interrogates them, accusing them of being spies, seeking out the nakedness of the land, suggesting that they are violators of the worst kind. The probing accusation is designed to bring truth to the surface. Joseph desperately wants to know about this and about other family members. 
And in their innocence, they anxiously protest that their motive is solely to buy grain. They are not a regiment of spies, but brothers all from one father. The logic being, a family doesn't risk almost all its sons in the dangerous venture of spying. Pressed against the wall of accusation, they claim to be a family rooted in honesty and goodness and brotherhood, a far different look than 20 years ago. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. So the grilling goes on. The harder Joseph presses his accusation, the more family details emerge. Now he learns they are 12 brothers from Canaan, and the reason not all are present is that the youngest has remained at home, and one is literally no more. They assume Joseph is dead, but they can't bring themselves to say it. The irony is that the 12th one, whom they think is no more, is standing right in front of them. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you were spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, that's an oath, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now Joseph gets even more severe. He doesn't know if he can believe them. Perhaps, out of jealousy, they had killed Benjamin just as they had thrown him into the pit. So he sets up a test to determine the truth. He will incarcerate all of them while one of them is allowed to return home and get their youngest brother. As he shuts the prison door, it closes with this ominous threat of by the life of Pharaoh. Their lives are hanging in the balance. In that culture, you were guilty until proven innocent. So for those days, Joseph's brothers remained in prison with the words, your youngest brother, echoing in the chamber. One wonders if this was the same prison cell in which Joseph was incarcerated for years. But surprisingly, after three days, Joseph's countenance lifts, and the terms of departure change drastically. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. <laughs> I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined when you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Well, after only three days, the prison doors are opened. Instead of detaining nine brothers and allowing one to return home, Joseph requires only one to remain behind. The rest are free to go to take the needed grain home to feed their families. Now, Joseph says he changed his mind 
because he fears God, demonstrating he's not in this for revenge. Though the brothers might think Joseph fears one of the gods of Egypt, his words should have jarred the memories, reminding them they did not fear God, the true God, when they took no mercy on Joseph in the pit and when they deceived their father. Joseph's desire is that they might have life, but now what stands between life and death is the return of the youngest brother. Well, Joseph's wise strategy works brilliantly. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. For the first time, we learned that after Joseph was thrown into the pit, he pleaded for mercy, pleaded for mercy, but his cries fell upon deaf ears. Now those cries buried for 20 years are reawakened. Walter Brueggemann describes the terrible tyranny of guilt, the tyranny of guilt that enslaved the brothers for two decades. He says, they are bound by their initial act against Joseph. The resulting deception of their father lies at the bottom of everything. The brothers have no room in which to act, no energy for imagination, and no possibility for freedom. They are bound by the power of an unforgiving past, immobilized by guilt, and driven by anxiety. Their guilt and anxiety can surface neither in the presence of their father nor in the presence of Joseph. I know that feeling. Many, many years ago, uh, as a leader, I tried to reconcile two people very naively and went in impulsively and in the process got implicated in the guilt and wrong. And what happened was I lost a friendship. And when they went away, they said, I want nothing more to do with you, so there's no way to reconcile. And for one solid year, for 24-7, I was hounded by the devil with my guilt and shame. And I couldn't shake it. Once I was on a bike ride, and I was headed down Foothill, and, and I was just depressed. And I said, Lord, does this have to last forever? And immediately, a young co-ed from UCLA came up, and she started pedaling. And so all of a sudden, I'm talking to her and sharing the Lord all the way up, and then up to Woodside. And then I thought, Lord, how amazing you answered my prayer. But then she went off toward the hills, and I stayed on the flat, and the oppression continued for a whole year. And it paralyzed me. I stepped off the board. I felt I couldn't function. And only by God doing severe measures to bring the situation back together did it lift. Well, Joseph's words unlocked their past. Gripped by their corporate guilt, they look at each other and confess their long-standing sin. The process of recognition is now beginning for them. They're beginning to decipher God's hand orchestrating events so that each man is receiving back what is due. And if you're a believer and have hurt people and have not dealt with it, I guarantee you, because God loves you, you will relive it where you're the victim to learn compassion. 
So as they're beginning to soften towards one another, that sweet atmosphere of remorse is broken by the firstborn's accusation of blame. Good old Reuben, the oldest, asserting himself. Verse 22, and Reuben answered, did I not tell you to not sin against the boy, but you didn't listen, now there comes a reckoning of his blood. Now this is the first time we learn that Reuben challenged their plan, but was not a strong enough leader to prevent it. Now he tries to step out of the circle of responsibility, pointing his finger at blame at his brothers like an adolescent who cries, I told you so. But while they're speaking, Joseph is listening to every word. Until this point, we probably think he blamed Reuben, the firstborn, for what had happened. Verse 23. They did not know Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and he wept. It's a very beautiful thing when brothers and sisters confess their brokenness. Joseph wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them and he turned to Simeon, took Simeon from them, bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. And then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. So until now, the narrator has withheld the information that Joseph was speaking through an interpreter. This gave the brothers liberty to freely speak about their emotions. And as they confess, Joseph is so moved that he must turn away and weep. I like it when men can't control their emotions, you know. <laughs> when a man cries, you know he's real. Walkie commends Joseph's spirit. He says, as brothers own up to their crime against him, he does not gloat but weeps. Joseph will subsequently weep three more times. Joseph's tactics are harsh, but his emotions are tender. Well, after composing himself, Joseph selects Simeon because he now realizes the responsibility for selling him into slavery fell upon the second oldest brother. And he already had a reputation for cruelty. So he bound them before their eyes, another reminder of their guilty past. How different the look in their eyes from 20 years earlier as one of their brothers is bound against his will and separated from the rest. But Joseph is still not finished. Now he introduces the final note of guilt from their family history, the money. There's 27. And as one of them opened the sack to give his donkey fodder at a lodging place, he saw the money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this God has done to us? Well, Joseph sends them home with generosity. They not only have abundant grain for their families, but all their traveler checks have been returned. When one of them discovers the money on their way home, their hearts literally it said, come, came out of them, leaving them trembling, united by their collective guilt. With this move, Joseph had made it all the more difficult to prove their innocence. If they go back now, they turn the risk of not only being suspected as spies, 
but also as thieves. And with Benjamin in tow, the whole family's at risk. On the other hand, what price are they willing to pay for their brother? If they choose to remain at home, Joseph has made them wealthy. They have every reason not to return to Egypt. With these trembling thoughts running through their minds, the stunned brothers travel home to a waiting father to whom they must give account. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know if you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. So the brothers relate the events to their father, but you'll notice they omit their imprisonment and confession. And that would have just increased their father's pain. Ken Brueggemann notes how guilt has harnessed them to their painful past. He writes, as a result, the brothers are excessively concerned for the safety and well-being of their father and Benjamin. Having falsely grieved their father, they must be on continual guard. They don't add to his grief. Because they could not believe the dream, they are forced to treat their father Jacob as though he was the last generation who must be kept alive and unharmed for perpetuity. And they cannot see themselves and as a generation of promise bearers because they never believed the dream. Well, Jacob has no response to these events, but as the brothers begin unpacking, all the silver pours out of each man's sack. As they emptied their sacks, verse 35, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. So dad sees the money, it has guilt written all over it. Walkie comments, up to this point, Jacob probably found their story credible. The money, however, makes them look guilty, especially since he knows his sons are not trustworthy. And does Jacob think they sold Simeon? The money in the sack widens the breach between Jacob and his sons, but it brings the brothers closer together. Well, Jacob doesn't wait for an explanation to indict his sons, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. And all this has come against me, me, me. Jacob is now consumed by the unthinkable. He cannot hide his suspicions. He suspects Simeon has suffered the same fate as Joseph, and it's their fault. The thought of taking Benjamin down that same path pushes his grief over the edge. Self-pity consumes the patriarch, robbing him of any faith to see beyond his own needs. 
At this dark moment, in steps Reuben again with his clumsy attempts to assume leadership. He says to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. So Reuben tries to console his father with an utterly stupid suggestion that the loss of Jacob's two sons could somehow be compensated for by the death of his own two boys as if her, his sons were not Jacob's grandsons. Typically, Reuben is well-meaning but utterly lacks any wisdom to lead the family. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. That's the grave. Jacob will not even consider letting Benjamin return to Egypt. In Patriarch's words, he is the only son he has left. If something should happen to him, his life would be meaningless. That's quite a statement to make in the presence of your other sons. To Jacob, they are non-sons. And it's obvious that 20 years have not changed his penchant for divisive favoritism. As the head of the home, he has apparently halted the process of reconciliation. Well, our story seems deadlocked in a power struggle between a father in Canaan and a son in Egypt. Who in this family will be able to break the paralysis? One thing is certain, if these brothers are ever to be reconciled, it will have to be in spite of not because of their father. As for Joseph in Egypt and Simeon in prison, all they can do is wait. That's our story. So what do we learn in this opening scene in the process of reconciliation? Well, number one, we need faith to recognize God at work. In this story, we learn that Joseph's exaltation in Egypt was designed not just to save a Gentile nation from starvation, but ultimately to bring about reconciliation of Jacob's family to God and to one another. To bring this about, God used a drastic, drastic means called a famine. A drastic means for a good end. God, through the famine, initiates the saving process by forcing this family to confront their past and each other. Now, this is not the last time God will use a famine to reconnect different parties. In the book of Ruth, famine is the means for redemption. In the parable of the estranged prodigal son, it is the spur that causes him to return home to his father. And in the book of Acts, God used the widespread famine in Judea to unite Gentiles with their Jewish brothers and sisters. When God causes a nation to violence and all that innocent people flee as refugees, that is not a threat to neighboring countries, that's an opportunity for the kingdom. When God creates a pandemic, and we have plenty of vaccines and oxygen, and India has none, it's not a threat, it's an opportunity. In fact, I put in the e-news this week an opportunity where our friends from IJM are raising money for a hospital to get the oxygen to save lives, because we have the means. 
severe measures by God is not the doomsday forecast to hoard, to run away, it's opportunities for the kingdom to connect, to risk, to give. So this indicates how important the work of reconciliation is to God. He used such severe measures to create a stage where once estranged parties can meet face to face. And just as the threat of death frames the chapter, so often does God use death to bring estranged families together. So the exhortation to us is to open your eyes to the work of God in such times for healing. Number two, reconciliation can be a lengthy and complex process. This is especially true when one party has suffered abuse. It's not simply a matter of forgive and forget. You can't ask an abused person to go back into that stage where the abuse occurred and heal. Joseph will not let his guard down until he determines if his brothers are trustworthy. And that not only takes time, it takes space and separation. It's essential that Joseph's brothers taste the fruit of their own deeds by being placed in the same circumstances into which they had placed him. These are also severe measures imposed by Joseph, but they are ultimately designed for his brother's transformation. Every detail in this story, the accusation of being violators, their time in prison, the binding of Simon and the return money reawakens their conscience to such an extent they recognize the powerful hand of God orchestrating events. And finally, when they can no longer bear the weight of their guilt, they come to their senses and openly confess their sin unknowingly in front of their brother. How long did God could do that? Now, this does not imply that we should not take immediate action to seek forgiveness when we've wronged others. The Bible says if you've wronged your brother, go. Don't even go to church. Go confess your sin. It does say, suggest, we don't impose repentance and reconciliation on those who've wronged us without the sensitive leading of the Holy Spirit to repair the way. Had I done that, I would not have had a year of depression. So our text not only calls for faith, it reminds us to be patient and allow God to prepare the way. Finally, our text inspires us to be courageous to be part of the process. I find it's utterly amazing that Joseph's wisdom is so refined, he's able to do things that only God can do. Who but God would have the insight and authority to orchestrate life as a way to test and refine the hearts of men. And this he serves as a type of Christ, who was also rejected by his family, betrayed for silver, given over to death on the cross, and yet because of God's faithfulness, Jesus, like Joseph, would survive the pit and be exalted first among the Gentiles in the opening ultimate hope that one day he could also rec rec reconcile his own family the Jews. It was the recognition of this pattern of reconciliation that gave Paul the courage to go to Gentile nations with the gospel. He says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. 
For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul went to the Gentiles knowing that his work was orchestrated by God to make Jews jealous and to reconcile them back to God. And now God gives us the same ministry of reconciliation. My dad was kind of like Jacob. When I became a Christian and didn't go to business school and came to this little, he thought was a cult church, he grieved and I lost a relationship for 20 years. But just like in this story, God brought him back to the stage when he needed his carotid artery fixed and he thought he was gonna die. And he ended up going to a men's retreat with a thousand men that loved Jesus. And they, not I, led him to Jesus. And that's our hope. As we share Christ, it's not just individuals saved, it's one family, Jew, Gentile, and our own flesh and blood and children and grandchildren. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. I think it's only appropriate to ask Bunny to come and do the benediction. Welcome, Bunny. I just have, I just have to say I'm going to miss these guys. And I just want to encourage you all to be, we all need to be like Joseph because Joseph was like Jesus. So just had to say that. Okay, now he needs to tell me what to say. Right there. Okay, thank you. So may the Lord of God enfold us. May the grace of God uphold us. May the power of God set us free to love and serve all God's people. Now to God, who by the means of the power working in us is able to do so much more than we can ask or even think. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all times, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.